Hello, everyone, and welcome back to What Would the Smart Party Do? And this week, we've decided to treat you again and get another special guest. But before we introduce him, let's say hello to my good friend, Baz. How are you doing, Baz? All right? All right. Am I not the special guest, then? You're not. You're, <laughs> I know I call you special quite often, but you're not, you're not the guest. because <laughs> I'm here every week. Oh, dear. It's getting complacent with me now. Well, oh. you know, the romance has gone from the relationship. What can I tell you? I feel like I'm being taken for granted. Never mind. <laughs> I like it, really. <laughs> but a company we still have a love affair with and uh, speak about their games frequently is Free League. So we are delighted this time to have with us uh, Matthias from Free League. How are you doing, Matt? I'm, um, I'm all good. I'm all good. How are you guys? Yeah, yeah. We're all good over here, too. Sun's starting to come out. Lockdown's starting to ease in England. The things are looking brighter. So we're looking forward to a summer of gaming. So I guess... The thing to talk about with you, of course, will be that you are the co-creator and game writer for the Ruins of Simbroom 5e, which uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will already know about Simbroom, which has been a highly successful game for Free League. So this is going to be a, a 5e treatment. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I guess probably from some people's point of view, they'll be thinking if they're old timers who played a lot of Simbroom, like they might think, why would I play 5e? And if they're 5e players, they might be wondering... Why would I get involved with Simbroom? So, could you give us your like elevator pitch of what the projects are now? Sure, it would sound slightly different, of course, depending on who you talk to. But we want to adapt what we not so modestly think of as one of the world's best settings for the greatest role-playing game in the world. I think <laughs> it'd be the, the the fastest version of this. <laughs> uh, and um, so, we created the we created Simbroom back in we launched it, I think, in 2016 the original game and uh, it, it took off we're happy with that the, the atmosphere of the setting and the simpleness the simple rules are pretty grim uh, but but also um, a, a good world to explore with lots of mysteries in it good 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 deal of sense of wonder in it and we actually started talking about making a 5e adaptation during production uh, and that might come off as weird if you don't know us D&D was one of the first games I played. I played the Mensner Red Box in 1983. was my introduction to basic D&D. And I've, I've played every edition all along the way and enjoy them more or less, depending on which, which one we're talking about. Uh, and, and there's a lot of 5e mechanics in, in, Sim, in Simbrum, actually. Or, or, and some of them are fixes of what I think that different editions haven't done so well. So for me, they've always sort of been related. So, so and, and some of the mechanics when we tried to adapt it actually just flowed from one of one of the, one system to the other. Like the corruption mechanic, which is a core mechanic in in Simbaroom, works really well in Five E with very little uh, adaptations uh, to it. So it's not it's not a it's not a huge leap mechanically speaking, and it's it's. Um, we also wanted, we knew we had fans because people contacted us early and said, in case you, wanna, you should consider doing this. It's an awesome setting. The art is fantastic. There's a lot of cool lore. You could do something with this. I'm like, yeah, I think we could. So we actually been talking about it for, for many years, but we haven't been able to act upon it uh, until recently. Excellent. So I suppose one of the first questions we could ask that is, I think you sort of touched upon it there a little bit, that Simbrim is quite... Um, a dark setting compared to a typical, like a Tolkien setting, for example, is probably a bit more light and high fantasy and Simbrum is a bit more um, uh, earthy, for want of a better yeah. word. Um, so how, how do you think it will translate then? Or what, what thoughts did you have around 
if you have a D&D character, for example, a magician, they're going to have lots of spells, whereas in Simbrood, typically spells are fewer and more powerful. So how do you sort of manage that power level difference? Because I think D&D is a bit like superheroes in fantasy world, whereas Simbrood classic, if you want to call it, that's probably a bit more darker and grittier. Yeah, I think there are two separate tracks on that. One is the aesthetic, as in the what themes. I mean, if you take... Nolan's Batman, for instance, that's a, he's a superhero, but it's pretty grim. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be colorful and, and, you know, with a sort of light treatment just because there are powerful characters involved or there's a lot at stake. It's not, and you mentioned Tolkien, and I would say Tolkien is one of the more pessimistic uh, <laughs> writers out there if you want to look at his lore and the world is going to shit. The elves are leaving because they're smarter than everybody else and have good votes. So... It depends on who you, how you view it, right? Sure. So part of it is an aesthetic. Um, it's, a, it's a darker world, um, or m- perhaps mysterious in a sense. The trick, of course, is the mechanics. If, if I think a lot, of, a lot of people that play 5e, you don't die a lot. You can, but, but uh, the system is propping you up or maybe even holding your hand to make sure you don't run into anything that you can't manage. So if you have an encounter, you can pretty much be sure that you can fight your way through it if you want to. And Symbarum is not like that by, by design. We wanted the world to be not unfair, but, but you have to keep, keep your wits about you and decide if this is a fighting encounter, a negotiating encounter, or a stealth encounter, or a very common one, which is let's flee. And come back another day or find a way around or whatever. So we're gonna take the the less lighthearted part is gonna be, of course, moving moving with us into into 5e. That's sort of the point. We're not changing the setting. I I, I described that somewhere as um, where it's gonna be the same setting and spirit, but it's gonna play different in detail because there are different systems and. In, in Symbarum, you don't level. You have no. You don't have a clear leveling system. But we're gonna. We're gonna. Of course, do levels in Five E. But they're not gonna be. I mentioned the hand holding. You're gonna be facing monsters you can't beat, realistically. Uh, and you will have to resort to other means to to solve the problem or or handle the challenge, which I think is more fun. We 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 even have. Um, we even have parts in Symbarum where we, we talk about uh, the point of having super powerful enemies and why that is good. And back to, you can communicate with your players like, you're not supposed to fight this. That's, that's <laughs> not why it's in there. It, you're supposed to do something else, right? And that's absolutely doable in, in 5e. It's, usually, it's just that it's usually not done like that. It's more, their, their, their idea of balance is not our idea of balance. We don't put... And not even in original Symbarum, we don't put the players in a situation where they can't survive. That'd be pointless. Right. So there's a balance to it, but it might not be draw swords and charge. That not, might not be the way to get out of it alive. So, so it's the aesthetic in one hand, the mystery. And it's, it's more, it's, I guess, a grayscale setting that, that's going to carry over, uh, which I think is more... You could call it political if you want to. It's not so clear who's really good or bad, at least not all the time. And even the factions that you might like might have parts. They have some splinter group or, or faction in the faction that you really don't get along with because they 
like, like it usually is. When you're with a large enough group, some part of that group is going to annoy you. And we've, we've kept that, and it's going to translate over to 5e pretty well. Matt, looking at the um, thank you, mate. Looking at your the, the options you got for players are obviously going to be yeah. a big draw for people coming from Five E, and mm-hmm. whereas your core Five E would have race and class, um, mm-hmm. you're going with Origins. I think it's called Origins for yeah. as a stand-in for race, and you've got some really interesting takes on classes as well. It mm-hmm. it looks from the Kickstarter like there's very few classes, but they must see how many subclasses you've got with it. And they all look like something you'd want to play. Could you maybe expand on on the approach you've taken with those, please? Yeah, origins we we use rather than race. We don't think race is necessarily the best term for it. Um, origin also covers, apart from different, I, I guess they would be species mm. <laughs> to a large extent. And then you also have cultures, and we merge those two. So various human cultures and also some. Some some of the species like elves or dwarfs or whatever would also would all be origins. Um, and then when we went for classes, we wanted to have a fairly recognizable and basic, I guess, role. Uh, what's your role within the party? So and th- there's not an infinite amount of them. You can call. We think it's maybe five, mm. but you could go up or down on that list if you want to. Five uh, E has a lot, but they also overlap in what role they have. It's mostly, and we we use we call that approaches instead. So, mystic is the broad term for everybody who relies on magic, whether they call it prayer or through a pact or studying old tomes doesn't really matter. It comes out the same when 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 the party is adventuring and trying to solve problems, whether in combat or out of it. So, uh, and warriors are stand up. They're, they're pretty the first line of defense kind of people uh, with rangers uh, and scoundrels sort of behind and, and doing other stuff. Uh, and we have a leader class called captain, which is a term of people who make others better um, without obviously using magic. Mm. So those are sort of the, the, the broad classes that we use. And then we 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 sub we subgroup them in in what we call approaches, and then you can get the, the more diverse uh, to find your your flavor within those. That captain looks really exciting. Fans of the warlord from fourth edition have been a bit shortchanged on that kind exactly, of role yeah, for quite a long time now. A really good catch, man. I love mm. that that class, and I, I didn't see it really come back in five E. Yeah. Uh, there are elements of it in the fighter, but not to the extent that the warlord did. Yeah. So the captain has a bit of that. Um, but you can you can also take put, put a flavor on the captains. It doesn't have to be like an, an officer. It could be uh, an adventuring merchant who used to boss people around and, um, and stuff like that. So, and, and many of the classes, I guess, or rather the approaches, <clears throat> sorry, especially on the, the mystic side and also some of the others are very tied into the lore, so they, they come out of a group that exists and have an agenda. You don't have to agree with that agenda, you just happen to be trained by them. So you can you can be a witch coming out of the dark forest of Davokar, and you might agree with with their defense of, of, of nature against the encroachment of men, or you, or you don't. It doesn't really, you don't have to, just where you come from and where your powers are based. So that, that the same goes for the others. 
I think that that immediately gives you some depth of character, doesn't it? Because that's um that's a question for the player to answer: is do you actually adhere to the traditions, or are you running against them, or you know have you followed a different path? And that that immediately yeah. gives what perhaps in the game might just be a wizard. Uh, some tie into the setting and some like questions mm-hmm. to answer and, uh, and decision points the players can fire off immediately. Yeah, and you can you can definitely people will see what we've done with the adventures. You get a lot of chances to permanently or, or temporarily ally with some group or, or going opposition to them. And you can you can you can be more mercenary and bounce around, or you can be like, no, we like these people. Uh, the Iron Pact is um, an old pact that was set up by the elves and humans to de- to de- fight against the uh, Empire of, of Simbarum that gave the game its uh, its name. With, with ruins now remaining, it's covered by a dark for uh, dark forest called Davokar, which was actually planted by the elves to keep the ruins and all the evil at bay with the roots. Uh, and humans, of course, want to go there and there's stuff to find that's useful and you can sell it and, or use it or, or so. Yeah, and you, you you'll have to have you're gonna have an opinion on the Iron Pack. You don't have to like them. You don't have to play with them, but you're gonna meet them or see what they do. So you're gonna relate to them. Some might ally with them. Some will see them as enemies. Other will sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. But, you know. So we're not we're not um, the game doesn't assume that you like or dislike some groups, um, but you can. There are there are there's uh a certain element of deeply corrupted evil that is that you can't negotiate with really yeah so it's it's more of a shade of gray that i think a lot of people like when they play it for a bit and, and they want to have that tactical combat but they also want to have a bit of intrigue uh, that 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 makes sense uh, at least that's what we when, when people talk about it they often describe what we've done as it's sort of a layered world it, Things are true on different layers, but you can then dig deeper and see that, sure, the, the, the last layer we're at had some truths, and there are a couple of new ones down here. They still make sense, but you, you can... The basic mythos, of course, is that the world is about creation, and, and mankind is about pruning nature and just making sure that it does what, what humanity wants. And if that goes too far, you create corruption in this fantasy world that nature can actually actively punch back so it's sort of these three thematic forces if you want to where you can play on that almost existential level or you can go up to politics or you can try to ignore everyone else and just see them as problems when you go for treasure so you can, you can move along these depending on how you want to how does that come out in play i suppose in a traditional 5e campaign you can do anything mm-hmm. obviously but most mm-hmm. of the time you're going to be going into holes in the ground, killing monsters, grabbing their yep. gold, getting more power. From what you've just yep. described about the setting being so fundamental to the Simbrun experience, what yep. kind of challenges do parties face on a, on a you know, what, what's an, if there is such a thing, what's an average adventure for Simbrun? Well, the, there are sort of classical ones. The, the treasure hunt is, is uh, I guess, similar to 5e, but populated by these groups that I talked about and the, and the factions and all. And you might want to, I think 5e would often allow you to fight your way through. And if you're powerful enough, people can't really stop you. Mm. The problem here is that you might have large organizations against you, groups or even entire people. You know, a, a barbarian tribe might not like you. 
Uh, and it doesn't really matter what level you have if a barbarian tribe decides that they don't like you. Hmm. You can't you can't you can't move on their turf easily at least. So you would do the treasure hunt, but you would have the political layer. It would always be like we can take these guys. Yes, we can. But have you seen what symbols they care? Do we want to piss these people off? These guys is not they're not the problem. But when their witches gang up on us and send their 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 you know awakened trees at us, it's gonna hurt. So can we do something else? So again, the we won't the experience is that you fight less in, in Ruins of Symbarum 5e than you do in standard 5e, and the fights are harder because you can spend more resources on each fight if you don't have as many in an adventure. So we're trying to push the stakes a bit and have everybody, the group often talks like, is this a fight we want to have? Do we have to, to fight now? Or can we do something else? So you do the treasure hunt, but it would, it would have a bit of, a, bit of di- a different flavor. Hmm. Uh, it's le- it may be less dependent <clears throat> on you and your, your personal power. It could also be um, what group you're facing. But you can also play a card. Let's say you take a, you take a mission for... Um, the Ordo Magica, which is sort of the classical wizard reorder, proponents of reason, they claim. So you could also meet the group and, and they threaten you and say, like, well, we're emissaries for the Ordo Magica. You want to piss off Ordo Magica? You're 60 and we're six. So you can probably take us, but you know who we represent. Let's talk. So you can also go the other way and maybe have a bit of a... So it's a bit more like that. But of course, eventually you're going to be on the ground against some ancient evil that is not going to talk to you and you don't have to care. They don't have relatives that care. <laughs> so you can just go at it. So that's sort of one. Uh, the other would be the sort of most, the more leaning into the intrigue. Um, and see, it, it, especially if you like a group or really don't like a group, I guess you want to make sure that they locally, at least you can prop somebody up or you can, you can try to take them down. It's got, it's not, it's unlikely the, you're probably not going to change the world. It's not that kind of game. It's so I think, matter. yeah, yeah. The, the original Sabre Room uh, sort of followed the Throne of Thorns campaign for a lot of the releases. Is that something you're doing as well with 5e? Are you doing something different for it or maybe both? Well, since we're on the, the Ruins of Symbarum now, we'll have a, a ma- um, an adventure bundle, which will go from levels 1 to maybe 10, I guess. That will showcase the world and all that, but we won't include the Throne of Thorns. Is a will end up being a six six part campaign. We call it the Chronicle since it's you can pay you can play them in each part. You can play independently. The world moves in some ways um, independent of, of of the players. Again, it's a living world with with the Queen Corinthia of the uh, of the. The Ambrian people, she will do stuff regardless of whether the players help her or not. She's got an army and, and assassins and whatever, right? So she'll get stuff done. The barbarian high chieftain will also counterbalance that if he can. And um, there's a bunch of dark sorcerers that are not going to play nice anyway. So the world will change and move between the parts regardless of what the players do, but they can also affect the outcome in certain areas or, in, of course, in certain ways. So this campaign is pretty massive, and we didn't see it as it, it didn't fit within this the first wave of releases from 5e. Uh, but of course, since we're now getting 
good traction, I don't see any reason why we won't would go there and give it to people. It, it, um, and that would that would span the entire length of, of levels from, I guess, one to twenty, uh, more or less. So at least, and not maybe one, but low levels up uh, through the entire system. So you get to play, you really play through a a, a, a class career. Sure. Uh, if you keep the same PCs all through through the entire thing. So one of the things you mentioned earlier as well was corruption. So I think the, um, mm-hmm. the quick start sort of says you don't need to worry so much about alignments. If you don't want to use that, you've got your own system. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about the corruption mechanics? Well, corruption is the, is the result of um, exploiting the creative forces of nature for your own, for your own gain. Uh, if you overdo that, if you don't just, you can use it to a certain extent, but if you do too much of it, you're going to, you don't necessarily kill nature, but it's going to turn on you in a very dark sense. And that's generally described as corruption. And every every character in the world or, or even things have what's called a shadow, which is a reflection of if they're more on the creative side of nature, on the more of the sort of dis- disciplinary uh, controlling side of it, or if they're cross the threshold into to becoming corrupted. It's most clearly the ones that most have to handle it are mystics because all magic is a corrupting activity. That's the you're taking advantage of loopholes, so to speak, in reality, and nature doesn't like that. So you get corruption in return. So in the five E sense, you wouldn't have spell slots. You would you would garner corruption when you cast spells. There's a threshold when you start to get permanent corruption and you get physical stigma, and there's also a point when you lose your character when they turn into something thoroughly corrupted and unplayable, nasty. So there's you, you can go out that way, but it's not totally random. So you as a player, you're in control of it, but it's a, it's a gamble as well because you can keep casting spells for as long as you think you'll, you'll as long as you can take it. Yeah. Which means that there are desperate situations where like, I might start getting permanent corruption or physical stigma or whatever, but we're stuck and it's not going to go well. So I'm going to push it for one more spell. There's sort of a, a, gam- a gambling, <laughs> you can push rolls as a gambling mechanic around the corruption. And it's, ba- it's your corruption threshold goes up as you rise in level and higher level spells create more corruption. So there's a, uh, like a, a simple balancing mechanic. Everybody have, has to care about uh, corruption because if you attune to a magical item, you also get uh, corruption. And if you use powers tied to those magical items, you also unleash corruption that ends up with you. So everybody needs to do it, but it's uh, managing corruption is bread and butter for mystics, and but everybody needs to do it. And there is even areas of the world that is so where something, some terrible, some some terrible deed has been done to to nature in the past, so that it, the entire area is corrupted, and just staying there will give you corruption. In the darker part of parts of, of Davokar, it is literally dark. Uh, and there are pools of oozing corruption around you. So if you want to go there, everybody's going to feel it. And that's the same in, in the original one in, in 5e. It's just the details, of course, are different since you don't have levels sure. in the original, but you do in 5e. So the slightly mechanically different, but it's uh, spiritually, it's, it's the same experience. How do you get rid of it? <laughs> Well, you can yeah, good question. Everybody wants, nobody asked that until they've played for a bit. Exactly. Um, 
you usually get what's called temporary corruption, which is something you can, um, in 5e, you have, um, there's a hit dice mechanic. You have a bunch of hit die, which is basically that you can use when you rest to recover hit points or remove temporary corruption. You need to find a safe place to stay, uh, lay low for a while and, and heal body and mind, sort of. Uh, on that note, we've added that just to keep uh, Davoka dark and, and dangerous, in, in 5e standard, you have a short rest and a long rest. Just to make life harder, we added an extended rest, uh, which is where you can rinse of Symbarum. You can, it's the only type of rest where you can spend hit dice to recover hit points or remove temporary corruption. You can only do that in what we call a safe place, which is not adjacent to your favorite tomb or, <laughs> or next to a tree, whatever. You need to find a, a defendable position. You need to find a, a, a colony or a, a village or a tower, whatever, that, that you can just spend more time in. So even a experienced group of adventurers in, in Ruins of Symbarum will start looking for a place to lay low for some time to get that extended rest because they can't go on indefinitely even if they... So we've... we've um, and this is one of the points where we, we differ a bit from standard 5e. We want the world to still be... You can do a lot if you're high level, but you're going to run out of resources and you need a safe place to stay. And the deeper you are in, in Davokar, the harder those places are to find, especially if you made a lot of enemies. Because there are... The elves have strongholds in the depths of the forest. But if you've, you've been nasty and killed a lot of elves to get a lot of treasure, you can't stay there. In fact, they're going to try to kill you. Hmm. So there's also the, again, you know, who, who, do you, who do you pick a fight with and why? It's going to come back. The, the, elves, the elves might be a bit of a surprise to the, uh, to the D&D fan because they're not quite the same, are they? No, not really. As I said, these are the Iron Pact elves, and they, their only job in these parts of the world is to keep humanity at bay, and they do that quite effectively at times. Mm. So, but you can deal with them too. They're not they're not um, impossible to deal with, but they're not necessarily happy with you wandering around in the forest and, and cutting roots and opening old tombs that should, for the sake of everyone, at least if you ask the elves, uh, be kept shut. Good stuff. So to, to move away, a little way away from, from that a bit, I guess you were originally part of a different Swedish game studio that merged with uh, Free League. I'm not going to try and pronounce it and embarrass everybody, especially you. With, but uh, can you tell us about like, your original game studio and, and how you led to becoming part of Free League? Sure. We started the, it's called Järnringen, which is actually a, an iron ring. So Järnringen started in, I think, 2001. And we did Mutant, uh, which is one of Free League's... Uh, game from Mutant Year Zero. We did a, a, a version of that. That actually goes back to a, a, a Swedish role-playing game long, released in 1984 called Mutant. So we did our take on that in 2001 and then eventually Free League picked up the license and did it. So, and Janningen did the Mutant, uh, a version of it that we called Heirs of Doom. And then we followed that on with, with a game called Coriolis, which is a uh, sci-fi game that also Free League then later picked up. Sure. So Free League actually started, the guys who started Free League, who I'm now also part of, but the guys who started it, they met as fans of Yandling and Games and started playing those games together. 
in Stockholm and right. decided to, to uh, start making their own stuff. So we knew them as, as fans who then started helping us uh, do content. And eventually Järningen uh, was, was uh, the first iteration was put to sleep and the Free League started, started doing their own thing. And I even helped them then uh, from the side. The Free League is actually named after a faction in Coriolis. Right. The free, uh, it's, a, it's a small collection of free traders that challenged the big consortium. Uh, they're called the Free League. So that's the way they picked the name. Or at least they, they took it from there. And then we, we resurrected Janningen again, uh, this time to do Simbarum. But we also felt we needed a partner, uh, a partner up with more people who were too few to have a stable sort of long-term organization. So that it was natural for us to contact our friends at Free League and say, do you want to merge? We bring Simbarum. You guys have, you're already working with Coriolis that we know and Mutant that you, we know, and you've also done a lot of cool stuff that we love. So that's what we did in 2018, I think. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that's um, <clears throat> the Free League of today. So that's the, the setup. Cool. And like, I don't know, he seems to have almost taken... I don't want to say taking the world by storm, that seems like a grand sort of time, but Swedish gaming, which perhaps going back 10 mm-hmm. years, people in the UK, maybe the US may not have heard so much about. If you look at how Free League and all the properties and titles are doing now, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of up there in the sort of top three, I would say, probably of gaming companies or something. It seems to be, certainly if you look at Kickstarter values and things like that. So mm-hmm. do you feel that in Sweden as well? Is a kind of, there's just um, a, a large, strong gaming community and a creative force behind it? Or is that just a... yeah? Now, there's, uh, there's several good companies in Sweden. Most of them are, I say, amateur in the sense that they don't do it professionally, not that they're not good at it. It's just that it's not a... Got a day um, job as well, maybe. A way to make... Yeah, they have a day job and then they do cool stuff. No, but they're definitely... I mean, role-playing games became really big in the sort of mid-80s in Sweden, and uh, it, it, it has stuck around. So a lot of people, I guess my age, ha- have played role-playing games. Of course, many of us who grew up with it wanted to do something along those lines and then many of them are now found in i guess the computer gaming scene in sweden is also pretty pretty big and a lot of the people that i meet, i also worked there for a decade so a lot of them also go back to the tabletop rpg scene in the 80s or, or 90s i guess mm-hmm. there are several other teams right now free league is i, I would say that the the biggest and then most Prominent, especially uh, internationally, in no small part because of the wonders of, of Kickstarter, right. where fans get to vote on what's cool <laughs> in a very concrete way. So that's been really helpful to us, especially as a small company. You can try things, and you have a really good gauge of interest, and you can balance your risk through crowdfunding. That's that's amazing. Mm, for sure. Well, if the one rings anything to go, if you'd be all right for a while, I think it's <laughs> really... <laughs> yeah, I mean, then we, we, we also partnered up with Francesco and the other guys who did the original One Ring, and it's uh, it's clearly it's clearly something that people liked and, and want to see more of. So that's... Uh, that's um, I thought it was going to do well. I, I knew people wanted more, but, but I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Fant- a fantastic community there. I think my, my favourite thing about Free League is... It's a games company that makes games, which might sound a peculiar thing to say, but there are games companies who make maybe one game, maybe yeah. two, but they don't yeah. actually produce new games with the regularity that, that Free League puts stuff out. It feels like last week Alien dropped. It feels like two yeah. weeks ago Vason 
hit the shelves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and here we go again with even more good stuff. You're killing my wallet. Thank you for doing that, but you are killing it. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the guests we had on uh, just last time, actually, was Dennis Detweller, who, who also used to work in the computer game industry. Um, and he didn't have massively great things to say about it. But I was wondering if you had any any comparisons between working in tabletop RPGs as opposed to working with computer games. And, and perhaps yeah. is there any lessons you've taken from your time in computer games that you can bring forward into RPGs? Yeah, there's a lot of similarities, of course. I mean, the design process and all that. You have way less people involved in, in tabletop RPGs, which I prefer, honestly. I like people, but not that many. <laughs> So smaller teams are usually easier to handle, but I think the big, biggest difference, and I I don't know if this is true of the tabletop RPG market as a whole or just us because we're small, but if you start to have outside investors that are just looking at the bottom line because they're comparing you to whatever else they might invest in, you get a very different climate in the company compared to if it's people who know games that make games, as you said last. Right, yeah. I know, I mean, Wizard of the Coast is owned by Hasbro. I don't think Hasbro has any particular, maybe they love RPGs, I don't know, but they're also a huge business. I would assume that the discussions about what to do, what products to pick, might sound different than from a a free league board meeting. For sure, yeah. So I think it's about how in, how can you be successful and, and not be too heavily influenced by people who are, and I am, I'm not against the, the money part of, of business. I like, I like that part of, play, of the video game industry. It's super interesting with investors and all of that, but I'm also happy not having it in free league because it means we can, we can make our own mistakes. If we want to make a stupid bet, we can do that. No, there's nobody to stop us and Kickstarter will tell us we're wrong. <laughs> and that's okay. Right. That's fine. Because we also, yeah know roughly what people want and i don't know you know we eat our own dog food so to speak right we, we don't produce anything that we don't want to play ourselves right and that's so as long as we are you know at, at pace with 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 the market or, or some part of the market i think we will we'll be fine that would be my take on it i'm not dissing the the video game industry i think that's really cool but it's a different beast on account of being huge and this I mean, the biggest games there cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make. And those that money comes from funds that want returns. Right, for sure. You have to accept that if you're in it. If you don't, you should probably do something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. the the, uh, the Hasbro point is interesting. So I've noticed recently, I think it was last week, that they have, um, for Magic the Gathering, the card game, they mm-hmm. have a lot of content creators that they were partnering with. And just before the new set, Strixhaven dropped, uh, like literally the day before, they told them all that they weren't going to be doing that event anymore, and yeah. that's that's an interesting one because for a lot of those content creators, that's like a, a big payday for them almost. Like they stream and get tips and something like that, but yeah. it's obviously purely a business decision. And uh, you've noticed a lot of this week, people who are influencers but don't necessarily play games yeah. have been get are still going to play Magic Live and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I can understand how some of the fans and perhaps streamers found that quite harsh, but from a games company point of view probably from a hobby point, you, you're trying to get more people into the hobby. So you sort of give with one hand and take away with another. It's, it's a problem that perhaps a lot of small RPG companies don't have to have, but uh, at a large corporate scale, you can definitely see how they're trying to influence things, but at least a positive uh, spin out of that is that they're trying to get more people into the game hobby, which will ultimately be better for everybody, I guess. Yeah, and I think every every big company would have to be 
the question is always, I mean, small communities usually breed good manners. Um, right. <laughs> because you know everybody and there's you can't replace people. This, this is the people. These are the people we talk to. If you have a global market, truly, you can replace customers. You don't have to be as careful with the ones you have. If you do something that gets you more than you lose, you're on top. And that's, again, back to the, the global business of, I mean, the, the video game market is bigger than the movies by a lot. Right. So, so and again, I'm super happy. Free league talking. And, and I'm just annoyed by, by COVID uh, that we can't meet fans mm. uh, and get the feedback we're used to. We usually we love that on the conventions and whatnot. That input is super important to us to, to just to check our inner compass that we're still we're still we're still in line with what people think is what they want as related to what we think is we think are the right things to do. So it's actually I'm looking forward to to going back to that. As we all are, to be honest. Yeah, yeah I assume so. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um do you sort of like get out and about quite a bit then when it's not these times of plague and curses? Do you, do you manage to get to many conventions and, and interact with people? Well, I I actually joined Freely full-time just this January, so I was... All right, good timing. Yeah, I've done some, but mostly it's been the other guys who, who, who travel. Again, it's a, you need to... You know, the time spent at conventions talking about games is... Time not spent at home creating them, so, so it's, <laughs> but uh, you need to find that sweet spot where you do both because I think the feedback you get is, is invaluable. So you need to you need to do that and come out and meet people. On a smaller level, what's it like trying to design games, launch Kickstarters, etc., in the middle of a pandemic? Are you able to meet in the same place, play face to face games, play tests with real people? We've of course gotten to explore the virtual tabletops a lot more. Uh, than, than before we've tried them. Some some of us liked them a lot. I wasn't really a fan. Being forced to play them more, I've, I've seen their their use. It's a skill. It's a different skill. DMing over a uh, over a virtual tabletop versus live is a very different skill set, even though it's related. So and of course we meet we meet from time to time to uh, to talk, but mostly it's like this. Mm. Quite honest. But, but that is not um, it's not a huge it's not a huge concern when it comes to I mean most of the most of the game design that we do is we have a, a like a workshop like this we talk about what we want to do somebody takes a stab at it produces a first draft sends it around and all of that maybe the meetings back when would would be held face to face but most of the work would be done apart anyway with people either writing or reading and commenting on what what's been done. Um, and of course, Kickstarter and all of that is exactly the same because we never meet, the, you don't meet them, you just do your stuff through the back mm. end. So it's been less problematic, I think, than I than I expected it to be, even though I think everybody feels, you know, isolated, but, but uh, all the practical stuff is, uh, works works um, really well. Mm. It would and be nice to get the dice out again though, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would, it would. So how do you go about things? If you're thinking of new games, I presume you've always got new ideas on the go. Yeah. Is that something you kind of like cook up on your own? Do you, do you get together to do that? Or is it a combination of both? Oh, I mean, for, for, for a game to make sense, uh, truly make sense uh, from a sort of, um, you want somebody who really has got the passion for it. Like uh, somebody needs to hold the torch high on it. 
right? I think this is a cool, cool thing. We probably want to match it to a skill set that we have, like most of what we're going to make we've done before. So now we're just going to add some aspect that we don't know that we have time to explore. Starting from scratch is, is not so smart. You want to go with something you know, plus something you don't know that you can learn and have time you can deliver reasonably well. And you, you need to have some idea that it's, there's also a market and that might be your gut feeling or it might be people talking to you or you might see a gap, like why, why, why doesn't this uh, product ex exist? It should, right? So that's, um, but what, what generally happens at, at Free League is that we start with a passion. Somebody comes with an idea and says, do you know what we need to do? We need to do this. And some people get excited. That is more like, ah, are you sure? <laughs> and then we have a, it's usually basically an internal pitch process, not very formalized, but but uh, at some point it's going to be a, a, a document that says what we're going to make, how much it's going to cost, who is it for, why is it fun, and then we we have probably a few of those. So, but the, the initial phase is really chaotic and just mostly people talking about stuff they think is amazing, <laughs> uh, which is exactly how you want it to be, right? So yeah, of course, of course. Um, and then when everybody else tells you it's not a great idea, you, you still go home and write it for your own campaign anyway. So screw those exactly. guys. Exactly. I mean, you can, you, you, it's a lot. You can, you, you can convince people. That's that's fine. Right? You just wanna. So so passion is so passion is key. We're, we're, there's a few of us. Somebody needs to drive it and, and just feel that it's that it's theirs. That the vision is theirs, and then everybody else can pitch in and help and you know give give the different views on it or help help create it or. or yeah, but somebody needs to realize like, this is, I want to do this because it's awesome. That's usually a requirement for it being, being good. Can't be too mercenary. Can't be, if you go the other way, it'd be like, ah, there's a market. Uh, okay, well, whatever. What do you <laughs> want to do? How do you satisfy that market? That's not really the way a, a small uh, passion-driven company would work. It's, it's more of those co corporate approaches, I guess. Yeah, sure. In the UK, probably about 10 or 15 years ago, there was a group called the Collective Endeavor, which was a loosely formed group of people that were just like individual game creators. You created their own little passion projects. I spoke to Rich Stocks, who was one of those, about, about creating a game. And he was like, well, what do you want to make a game about? And he was like, that that was literally like the kernel of it. If you're not like, if you haven't got a burning desire to create something, then what are you even doing? Like, there's no point trying to think of what game's missing from the market and I'll create that one. That's not, that's the wrong way to go about it, I think. So. And very similar their group when people ask, can I join? I'm a part of Collective Endeavor. It's like, well, if you have to ask, then you're not, like, you know, you just kind of know, you, you get the ethos, you don't. It's one of those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a weird, um, creativity is weird like that. It's not just games. It's you, somebody gets this idea that they believe strongly in and they, for some reason, imagine that other people will too. It's a, okay. it's a weird thing. But it's a beautiful thing too. So, but I guess that's where it starts. And then, then of course, we need to, turn it into a product and everything turns into a bit of a, everything becomes a job. It doesn't, uh, you don't end up with a quality product by just running on passion. You need to, and I think that's what Free League is, back to you, Bass, saying that we seem to release games every two weeks. Um, <laughs> it's not two weeks, but I understand what you mean. Uh, <laughs> but we, have a, we have a process of, of how to finish games, to wrap them up and have everything. So we don't, we, the process is smooth, so, so we don't have to spend too much energy on that stuff. It's a lot of hours, but we can do it. Mm. So that frees up time to think about the cool stuff and not just get uh, stuck on production details. We work yeah. with a lot of talented freelancers, too, that help us.
Yeah, in some ways, the ideas are the easy part, aren't they? But making it into an idea that you can translate and give to somebody in a package that they can play with is a different set of skills entirely. Yes, yes, it is. Mm. So it's it's a uh, it's um the idea is a uh, it's a prerequisite, but it's not enough. Mm. So speaking of passions, one thing we always ask our guests is uh is what they've been currently getting interested in outside of outside of your now your day job outside mm. of Simbaroom and ruins of Simbaroom. Yeah. Um, what's what's come across your uh, your personal radar from a gaming perspective or anything else at all? What's getting you excited that's out there? What would you recommend to us? Ooh, that's a tough one. Not because I don't have any. I have a few. Um, but since my day job has turned become games and, and game design, I I don't in, indulge as much in that my free time as much. So um, I've... Um, I've tried to understand. This is totally off topic. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm reading the Inserto series uh, from um, what's it called? The, it's called the, the Black Swan Skin in the Game. It's it's about risk, managing risk and understand how people are how we suck at at, uh, at handling the probabilities. Yeah, uh, which is tied to how we value risk, which we usually don't in a meaningful sort of meaningful way. You could tie it to games by game, how to design a system that is exciting, has a lot of randomness in it, but it's not totally incomprehensible to people. Mm. Or, or, you know, you pretend, you pretend it's random, but it's sort of not. Yeah. So, so it, it relates a, a bit to the sort of the math side of, of game design. Uh, and or maybe, the, or maybe even user interface, what do people think? Mm. How 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 good does the magic sword have to be for people to think it's good? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. At, at what point will people value it based on the on the math, right? Yeah, sure. I'd like Nassim, to... uh, sorry, Nassim, Nassim Taleb is the guy's name. But, um, ah. Black Swan is about you know these rare and catastrophic events yeah. that nobody really calculates uh, has a good way of measuring because. Everybody thought swans were black until the white until they found black swans in I think Australia or somewhere. So that's the name. Like until you see it, you don't even you don't even think it exists. COVID, pretty good example. Very few people had a good idea of what a pandemic would look and how it would look. So so I mean a, a bit like into to probability and, and and risk management and how that sort of so it's, it ties back to games but in a weird way. Yeah, no, I, in my business meeting I was having today, we were literally discussing how people don't understand basic statistics. And I think it oh. does it does extend into gaming. I did a, a master's in data science last year, so I've got a, a fair idea, but that probably yeah. just tells me what I don't know rather than what I do know, if you know what I mean. But yeah, if yeah. you yeah. take something as simple as rolling 2d6 and you need to get a four plus on one of the dice, and people mm. think, well, I've got a 50-50 on each of them, so I'm more or less guaranteed. It's like, no, you've got a 75% chance, but like, people don't see that. You know, there's a... Yeah, that's a very interesting thing when it comes to designing an RPG game mechanic or something like that. What you present on the paper hmm. and what people actually think in their head is their chances, and, and how they feel cheated if they haven't got the role that they expect to get, and things like that. Yeah, that's and an interesting also, aspect. Yeah, it's very interesting, and and you also have the uh, at what probability? Where do you want to keep the probability so people feel that they have a fair chance? Uh, in computer gaming, it's often. If you have a if you have hidden in them, um, RPGs are good because you see the dice. In computer gaming, you often have the dice 
behind, sort of in the back end, you usually don't see it. Right. And then it's even worse because then then things um, probabilities need to be really high on the player side for the player to even even recognize that it's a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stuff like that interests me. So it's sort of a game design thing, but it also extends into into other areas where we 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 try to make estimates or calculate the odds or not. <laughs> uh, I think the COVID vaccine discussion is is a almost perfectly weird, a horrible example of this, mm. where the, the blood cloth fear is unreasonable compared to everything else people do. It's so yes. The odds are so low that you will get it. But since people talk about it, and you don't know <clears> the odds <throat> of getting a blood cloth by just flying to Thailand, sitting on an airplane for 13 hours, which is way higher, but people do that for less good reasons. So it's uh, do we? how do we handle... How do we handle probabilities and how do we stack them and what's worth stuff? So that's it's a, it's a game theory thing that, that interests me a lot. And it, it, it's relevant from my game design, but not a super concrete way. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be a fundamental. You never know. I mean, I have a feeling that risk and reward kind of sit at yeah. the heart of, of what role-playing games actually are. Yeah. You're presented with a scenario and you're asked, what do you do? And, and your yeah. brain starts ticking through your options and... And yep. you want to keep your character alive or you want to win the scenario or whatever it is you want to achieve. You, you're balancing yeah. that all the time, aren't you, in a very vo open, dynamic environment. Yeah. And I think the, the, the difference between different... You can see your different... If you have a, a gun bunch of players in your group and you play a lot with them, you can see how they lean towards mm -hmm. certain characters, but also systems or scenarios. And I have a couple of... I have a guy, he, he always applies what we call the math hammer, Right, and he, he's really good on the math, so he knows exactly what his odds are. And he often he's that guy that picks weird spells in 5e because he understands that glitter dust is one of the most powerful spells in the entire game at that level. It's the it, and everybody's like, Why do you use that spell? It's like, Man, I'm gonna show you, and then he can just show the math why it's good. And then other people do like flashy things, or like they just want to look cool or have a you know, so you, you can attack it in, in different angles depending on what you want to get out of it. But I think that uh, what you said is is profound. Is how do you people like different systems because they some some people enjoy randomness quite a lot and think that's fun. Others prefer a more controlled environment because they have more control and can it's, it feels more fair to them. I think. Hmm. So those factors also come into to do do you like a system or not? How what sort of how wide is the range of possible outcomes and is that fun for or rather for what type of player is that fun where you yeah. frame it yeah because um, you can see descriptions of some games where people say oh it's very swingy probably yeah. means there's a large range of possibilities to get but yeah. whether that's a bug or a feature depends on the individual player right mm. and then in a system with lots of randomness you don't see skill doesn't really matter as much and if the, the the range of randomness is lower, skill matters a lot. So you, you can, and, you know, of course, back to if you have games like you mentioned Magic and all, where there's literally no randomness, which means that you, if you, you, well, there's randomness to what cards you have, but how you play them is a skill to a quite high degree, where many, many role-playing games have a wide range of outcomes in combat that's mostly decided by dice, which makes it more fair between like between skilled and unskilled players, I guess. 
randomness favors the underdog, I guess is what, you're, what I'm trying to say. Like, <laughs> sure. If you, have, if, you, if you don't know anything, you want to go for a game where randomness is high. Because yeah. they are, otherwise, the other guy, otherwise the other guy, the guy is going to beat you because they are better at this than you are. This is why I play role-playing games because I'm not very good at games. <laughs> yeah, no, sure, me too. Me too. I, let's I love let's the me look good. <laughs> I have the randomness aspect. It gives me a sense of skill. Yep, me too. Been coasting on that for a long time now. <laughs> Cool. Well, uh, I think we're just about coming up to, to our hour, Matty. It's been, uh, it's been great to speak to you. Have you got any of the upcoming projects or anything else you want to tell us about before you go? I'm, I'm neck deep in, in Ruins of Simrum. Uh, at the moment, we have some other stuff coming out, but I would probably want to talk about that when I know more about it. So sure. Like, right now, it's highly speculative and not in the, not in the fun sense. <laughs> <laughs> You are literally right in the middle of the Kickstarter for Ruins of Simbrum. As we record, we're exactly halfway through, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's doing quite well, I think would be fair to say, wouldn't it? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely, we're we're super happy. Uh, And and we didn't really know what to expect when we went there. It's like we we knew we had fans in the 5e community that that wanted us to do something with Simbrum. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, we also knew that we have original Simbrum players that are nervous because of this move, because it's sort of, and I can see where they're coming from. They they they're they're afraid that we're gonna do less on the original game, but it's different teams, and we're gonna work in parallel. So it's more we're gonna produce the same settings um, and hopefully over time the same adventures for both. There's no uh, there's no um, unique content for the fighty. It's the it's the, okay. the same it's the same game, uh, same adventures, same setting that just carefully adopted and optimized for fighting so that's that's what the kickstarter is about yeah we're super happy lovely stuff well we will get this edited and out well before the kickstarter ends so if any of our lovely listeners want to go over and check it out and or back it they can do so which is good uh thanks very much for coming on the show it's been great to speak to you sure likewise thank you guys thanks man cheers bye for now